Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Vladimir Sokor, political analyst with the Jamestown Foundation, Ginger Bungs, senior research fellow, Latvian Institute of International Affairs, and Bogdan Nahalo, writer with Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, discuss the question of relations among the many ethnic groups that were encompassed within the USSR and its importance to the structure and stability of these emerging republics. We hope you enjoy today's episode, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. What we're seeing today, I think, is a revolution taking place in what has usually been called Eastern Europe, uh, the East, uh, a revolution comparable perhaps to the revolutions that took place in 1918 and 1917 when several empires collapsed, notably uh, the Russian Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, today, unfortunately, a lot of people in the West, in the United States, in, in Britain, France, still think in terms of uh, a potential balkanization of uh, uh, this eastern part of Europe. They think in the terms uh, that were prevalent um, before the First World War and during it, that somehow these small, troublesome countries out there on the fringes of Europe are now... Uh, causing trouble again, that that in most cases uh, it's a question of uh, troublesome nationalists, uh, extremists who are somehow uh, creating small, not very viable states. And wouldn't it all be much better if we had uh, order and uh, a large state, namely the Soviet Union, uh, continuing? Um, I think that this is a, a very flawed uh, perception of, of what's been happening. Well, but to some degree, I think there's ample reason, and the reason uh, that people are concerned uh, is most notably what's going on in Yugoslavia. We cannot dismiss that, but yet at the same time, drawing, Yugoslav drawing Yugoslavia and that their experience to the Soviet experience is not one and the same thing. In that respect, I think it's... It's comparing two situations where the historic foundations are not alike. But I do understand where the fear comes from. And uh, I think probably when one is closer to that area, one is more involved in that. For instance, Hungary is getting quite a lot of uh, refugees from Yugoslavia. They're trying to escape war. They're trying to save their lives. So I think there is foundation for that fear, but again, one cannot compare the two situations so easily and, and put an equal sign between them. Balkanization has a bad name, but uh, not all fragmentation is balkanization. Uh, in some cases, fragmentation is in line with uh, progress, as in the case of the self-determination of nations. Uh, the analogy with Yugoslavia might have some merits in the society. I think uh, what we see in Yugoslavia is uh, the tragic effects of an unscrupulous central power trying to uh, maintain an artificial structure by any means and without looking at the human sacrifices that it pays. And I think there is a distinct danger that we might witness that in the Soviet Union if the present center goes after the Yugoslav example. But uh, just to... Uh, dwell on something that you mentioned, this the concept 
of the right to national self-determination. This is something that's taken for granted as a democratic right in the West. And uh, there is a rather patronizing view on the part of uh, some Western states towards those countries which are trying to somehow realize this right. And what is often forgotten, if we uh, look at things from a historical perspective, is that uh, what is happening today in the eastern part of Europe is the continuation, the resumption of interrupted historical processes. Exactly, yes. History was uh, artificially stopped, as it were, uh, in, in this part of the world, and a monolithic alien system uh, was imposed from above or from outside. Uh, and that's why I return to this notion of balkanization, because uh, I reiterate, in the late 19th century or early 20th century, there was this uh, condescending view towards the Balkans. The Balkans, these were what really countries, they, they, these were the, uh, the, the, the kinds of states that perhaps the Marx brothers uh, poked fun at uh, in the 30s. And uh, it's, uh, I think something of this mindset has, has remained. Uh, I remember being very annoyed when I was uh, in the United States a few months ago, seeing a cartoon uh, which had um, venerable Western diplomats sitting at a table and in uh, ran two uh, peasant types with bombs in their hands uh, shouting, we're independent. And the look of disdain on, on, on the view of this, uh, you know, uh, club of, of, of privileged nations or representatives, you know, uh, as if, you know, who are these people to interrupt us? And uh, I, I guess that uh, people in the West have tended to forget what it is that these people, peoples, nations, European nations, uh, are still striving for today at the end of the 20th century. Well, I perfectly agree with you on that. I think one can also look at the European experience and again, uh, how one is treating Slovenia, how one is treating Croatia, what the feeling there is, because there seems to be the feeling, at least in the majority, that it's the Serbs who are the aggressors. And it is, for instance, the Croats and the Slovenes who do want to get out and to run the show for themselves in their own territories. And uh, when one agrees to the principle of self-determination of nations, that that is a right to which every nation can aspire, then of course one has to ask some very basic questions. Where do we in the West stand? And uh, I think this is, uh, to go back a few months, when the when Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania uh, restored their independence, Lithuania came first and then came uh, Estonia and Latvia in August, there was also the question, and particularly in the United States, where do we stand on this when it comes to do the practical thing, to take the one final step to implement that long-standing policy, U.S. policy of non-recognition of the incorporation of the Baltic states in the Soviet Union, then there was a good deal of hesitancy from the State Department about that final step of recognition. This is this uh, traditional discrepancy between principles, recognized principles or declared principles, and self-interest when it comes to the crunch. 
Mm. Um, this happened very clearly in the case of the Baltic Repu- republics, the Baltic states, I should say. Um, and uh, to some extent, it's happening now as, as Ukraine has emerged as an independent state, mm-hmm. and Moldavia has, but uh, Ukraine is in a better position. It's better known than, than Moldavia. So the Moldavians haven't even got the amount of looking that the Ukrainians have got. Uh, but still, there is the question of, of, of self-interest. Uh, and uh, we see almost a kind of progression of, of, of demands that have been made. It used to be that simply the occupation of the Baltic states was not recognized, and we all long for the day when these states would be independent. Suddenly they were independent, and there were these delays, and it was explained to these peoples that they didn't have control over their territory, they didn't have full sovereignty, they didn't control their borders, they didn't probably have an army that, that could look out to their interests. Further down the road, a few months down the road, Ukraine emerges, proclaims that it's building its own army, says, unfortunately, we've got nuclear weapons on this territory, not that we've been built up, but uh, have been left behind by the imperial system. No, we don't want to hand them back to the Russians. We've had problems for 300 years with the Russians, and it's a bit unreasonable for us to, to simply hand them back. And suddenly, uh, Ukraine is portrayed as, as a new nuclear militaristic state, and uh, conditions are, are, are imposed. We won't recognize you unless you suddenly give, give away. It's okay for France to be a nuclear Power. It's okay for Britain to be one. Nobody questions that. But uh, a new country emerges, and it's uh, it's simply um, dismissed as, as 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 a bellicose country, I suppose. I think there's a good deal of disinformation emanating from Moscow that goes <clears throat> into that stereotype of Ukraine as a militaristic power. But uh, there is this um, view which seems to permeate, uh, especially U.S. policies uh, on the matter which says that uh, national self-determination with its corollary, the nation state, is somehow retrogressive because it leads to isolation. Uh, both President Bush and Secretary of State Baker have repeatedly warned against what they call the danger of isolation as a result of the formation of nation states. Uh, this view ignores clearly the fact that under the old centralized system, natural interaction among nations and nationalities was made impossible by the very centralized system. And only now, when that structure is is disappearing, only now will it be possible for the new uh, emerging nations to interact with one another in a natural and mutually profitable way. And I think they are eager to do that. None of them is, uh, none of them intends to isolate itself from the others. There's another aspect too that I I wanted to, to inject, and that is, uh, the, the different standards that are used in recognizing independence. <clears throat> After all, if we look at the way that um, decolonization was welcomed in Africa or in Asia, um, these countries, these states, were uh, helped along, and even if they imposed one-party systems, as happened in Zimbabwe or elsewhere, this was tolerated, they were welcomed to the club of to the community of nations. Here we have states uh, asserting their democratic approach uh, to all sorts of problems, and yet uh, they're they're told that you're not quite good enough yet, you you still have to wait your turn and you have to learn and you have to abide by by our conditions. And it's, it's, uh, I think it's insulting for these peoples that have had to uh, suffer for so long under such such an oppressive uh, system. 
particularly when we have to do with historically constituted nations with a long experience of statehoods uh, behind them, which in this respect offer immeasurably greater guarantees of democratic development compared to the states which emerged in the 50s and 60s. It's not only a question of uh, myopia, I think, it's also a question of uh, a lack of uh, fundamental facts about history and about the uh, uh, the experience that these peoples were, were, were subjected to in the eastern part of uh, Europe. Um, there is something that, that always I find very difficult to understand, and that is why uh, so many people in the West, particularly in the United States, Britain, France, are so keen on seeing the survival of the Soviet Union. Uh, I think most of the peoples, including uh, many Russians, would uh, agree with President Reagan's description of uh, what has now finally collapsed as a very evil empire. And Mr. Gorbachev will appeal on television that, uh, you know, uh, uh, conjure up apocalyptic visions of what will happen because the Soviet Union will disintegrate. Um, it seems that uh, Mr. Yeltsin doesn't share this opinion. Mr. Yeltsin wants to create a, a democratic Russia uh, and have reasonably good relations with with neighboring uh, states and somehow work out problems jointly. Um, why why is this somehow uh, reprehensible to, to President Gorbachev? And why does the West continue to see him uh, as, as the one savior, as the one hope that there is for, for avoiding this uh, cataclysmic upheaval. This upheaval has occurred. The revolution, the train has left, as it were. The revolution's taken place. It's Gorbachev that's been left behind. And if he realized that and was uh, a politician uh, worthy of, of the reputation that he's had up till now, he would leave the stage gracefully. Uh, instead, in his most recent speeches, he's been very irresponsible. For a man who won the, who was awarded the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, he's now playing this uh, card of, of conjuring up images of bloodshed and fighting between Ukrainians and Russians after 90% of, of Ukraine had voted for independence and the majority of Russians had backed it. Now suddenly President Gorbachev is saying, Russians, be careful down the road, the Ukrainians might be nasty to you. Oh, it says inevitably. Inevitably. Yes. Inevitably. He's being very inflammatory. And I agree with everything you, Zintra, said about Zhirinovsky and you, Bogdan, about uh, Gorbachev. But I'm afraid the problem is a broader one. Um, there is uh, emerging in Russia a new spectrum of political parties, some of which are impeccably anti-communist, some of which are devoted uh, to the free market or to other liberal principles but most of which take an old-fashioned imperial and centralizing approach to the republics. Suffice it to mention Trafkin's Democratic Party of Russia, or even Aksutich's and Osipov's uh, Christian Democratic Movement of Russia. Both of these parties, which have a strong political potential in Russia, have a history of opposition to communism, are uh, devoted to the free market principles, to religious expression, and so on. But they take an approach to the, to the republics, which is almost indistinguishable from that of the communists. They too are playing up the card of inter-ethnic conflicts as a way, as a desperate way, of keeping this empire together. They too are threatening with the revision of borders of the republics which secede. They too are picketing the missions in Moscow of, uh, of republics which now seek their emancipation. So I wonder 
what is going to happen after communism is gone, after communism collapses. It could be that, uh, that we will witness the emergence of a coalition of non-communist parties, which might try to keep the empire together and resort to equally unscrupulous means as their predecessors. Uh, we here have our uh, finger on this pulse, so to speak. I'm not sure to what extent the Western public has become aware of it. Well, I think the Western public has a lot to learn, but then of course there is a lot to be learned, period, because the developments that we have witnessed here, and we have, as you said, we have been at the pulse, we have been listening, we have known within seconds what's gone on, but those changes have been so momentous and they have been going on so very fast that it's very difficult to digest them and also to fathom the deeper meaning of everything. And I suppose, you know, all of us will have to play it by ear to a certain degree. But I do think that a lot can be done in encouraging the democratic processes there. And there are ways of doing that. And I think that is something that the West should be focusing on. I quite agree with you. Instead of just channeling in credits and money and bailing out a bankrupt system and just pouring money into a bottomless well in the hope that this is helping starving Russians or, uh, you know, uh, averting the winter hardships there. Um, it's not going to help at all. Um, what will help is what, what you suggest, actually helping to bolster or to, to build up concrete democratic institutions. I think that, for instance, the leaders of the newly emerged independent and democratic republic should be rewarded. They should be rewarded for the policies, for their respect for human rights, for the kinds of constitutions that they, they draft, for the protection of minorities. All these things should, uh, should be uh, rewarded That is, if the West wants to give its money uh, to, to this cause. Uh, um, instead, um, you know, President Gorbachev goes off every few months to the West, cap in hand, and uh, everybody feels sorry and he somehow comes back and uses this as an argument before the others. I watched him on television yesterday. In the West, they want the Soviet Union to survive. They tell me in the West. And he, he invokes this as an argument to his own domestic constituency, which has had enough of this system. It's the West that wants the Soviet Union now. Well, I think that too, there are still some politicians in the West that had a good relationship with Gorbachev. And I think it's also a matter of face saving. Some of them simply don't want to say now, I've been wrong. Yes, but the preconceptions in favor of the center long predate Gorbachev. That's true. They are the That's product true. of, yes, of uh, historic in, uh, intellectual development. Yes. Uh, for example, when we uh, hear President Bush uh, talking in Kiev twice in the same speech, in Kiev of all places, about the Soviet people, then we know that some, something is really amiss regarding, uh, regarding the political advice in the White House. Yes. But unfortunately, this is the stereotype based on ignorance that persists exactly. out here, the Soviets, yeah. the Soviet people. Yeah. I mean, what, what uh, does a Tajik Uzbek... Uh, uh, Kazakh, um, I don't know, mention any one of 120 different uh, nationalities and groups have in common other than the fact that uh, they were kept together by, by force and coercion over the, the years and uh, what is often forgotten, they were made to extol the virtues of all things Russian. Um, 
you know, it's it's one thing I think for the West to admire Pushkin and Mandelstam and everything else. If there's a free choice, if you want to enjoy this literature, it's another thing when your own culture and history are squeezed out and you are told that uh, if you want to be progressive, if you want to get on in life, if you want to have access to science and to the outside world, be Russian or learn Russian or adapt to our way of life. Precisely, and and yeah. this imperial nature, uh, nature, the chauvinistic nature of Soviet Russian rule uh, is, is also something that's forgotten. Uh, it's, it's often uh, the point is missed that by calling people Russians when they're not in fact Russians or yes. simply Soviet, this is highly insulting to, to people who have uh, who have fought so desperately by peaceful means, though sometimes they've had to resort in the past to uh, to, to violence uh, to uh, to survive as peoples. Mm -hmm. Now, this is this is going to be one of the problems that's going to be discussed, I think, uh, in the near future, and probably with a good deal of animosity on some sides, and that is precisely the use of of the language of the state that various people are living. Because what has happened in the Baltic states is that all of those uh, Slavs who came in after World War II, most of them simply maintained their command of Russian. Most of the Ukrainians who came, they sided with the Russians. They forgot that they were Ukrainians. The Belarusians also tended to forget that they were uh, Belarusians, but they sided with the those people whom who were considered in the top of the hierarchy they sided with the russians they sided therefore with the soviet system and there was that tendency of that system to look down on the balts to look down on the titular nationality of the quote unquote republic yeah. after all this is the soviet state we are all soviet people our language is russian and therefore, don't bother with us with anything else. Don't complicate our, our lives by asking our children to learn Latvian, by asking our children to learn Estonian or Ukrainian, God forbid. Yes, I mean, the point I wanted to make here is, yes, uh, unfortunately, I would say the majority of Ukrainians in Baltic republics acted as surrogate Russians. Uh, but uh, there are reasons uh, for this or without justifying it. For instance, in Moldavia, 600,000 uh, Ukrainians, they didn't have a single school until the, the democratic government was elected and has now, uh, you know, started a program which uh, respects uh, the cultural rights of, of minorities living in that republic. And uh, this was the case. What the point that also should be made, uh, all this would be fine not really fine, but we could understand it if the Soviet Union didn't make the claims about itself that it did. If it simply said, we are an empire, whether you would like it or not, we run things the way we uh, want to run them. But all this time, for 70 years, the Soviet Union was telling the outside world, particularly the third world, that this was a new model society, a society built on socialist relations, uh, where equality of peoples was guaranteed, where equality of languages, etc., the myth, the lie that was perpetuated, which so many people, unfortunately, in the West and in the Third World, swallowed and still believe and, until this day. I'm glad that both of you brought up the issue of uh, of uh, citizens of the non-titular nationality living in other republics. 
I think in this connection we might usefully discuss this uh, concept which is about to be established, and I think we should debunk it, of uh, Russian-speaking population. Uh, because the center uh, tries to obtain, or what remains of the center still, tries to obtain a license for political meddling into the affairs of the newly independent republics by using, uh, in a speculative way, the concept of Russian-speaking population. Uh, which I think is an untenable uh, concept. Uh, it's uh, untenable, uh, first of all, conceptually, because, uh, because it tries to subsume under one uh, overarching identity uh, peoples and nations with their own identities. I think the concept proposed by Gorbachev now of the Russian-speaking population is the latest and unwelcome uh, reincarnation of the concept of Soviet people. Exactly, yes. It's yes. the amalgamation of everybody under one overarching identity. I think that we must uh, retort to this. Mm. Uh, I say retort. It's a melting pot, melting as, as Khrushchev, you know, tried to uh, concoct it, uh, as did the Tsars. Mm. But what what the world has to to remember that it has a distinctly Russian flavor to it. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.